You are listening to the podcast Being Donor Conceived Stories from Children and Parents. I'm your host, my name is Sabrina, and I live in Copenhagen with my husband and our donor conceived daughter, Mita. While I'll take the lead of these four episodes, I will also talk to several members of donor conceived families, all in order to better understand what it means to be donor conceived. In this, our first episode, I want to introduce you to some of the families who've made the choice to use a sperm donor, as well as some experts from the sperm donation industry. And it was only when I met my now wife, um, and she was very, very keen to have children, and I then actually had a change of heart. I think for a lot of people, to become a mum is like the greatest badge of honour in my book. But it was always plan A to have a family with a lot of children and to have a husband and a house and a dog. And now I have uh, a daughter and a house and a dog. So that's nine out of ten. That counts. Exactly. Exactly. (laughs) Ever since a stranger helped my husband and I create the family we longed for, I've wondered... Is my daughter's donor conception something we should talk about or forget as best we can? Does it affect the way the world sees us? What about the DNA she now has from a person we don't know? And what do we do with the donor? Should we share the information we have? And when is our daughter even old enough for that? You can probably hear that I have a million questions. And that's why I decided to take a deep dive into the world of donor-conceived families. Hopefully, you'll find the answers to your own questions along the way. The first person I want to introduce you to is Annemette Andal Lauritsen. She is the CEO of European Sperm Bank, the sperm bank that helped me form my family. I asked her what kind of families use sperm donations... And here's what she said. I think it's any kind of family or, or person. I think it's it's any any person who would really love a family and they are not really in a position where they can do it uh, without a donor. And that, whether that is a, a heterosexual couple living together, whether that's a same-sex couple, whether you're single, regardless of age, regardless of where you live, regardless of how you look, uh, and, and then we will can really support anyone really to to have that dream family. Heterosexual couples, homosexual couples, singles at different ages from all over the world. That's quite a diverse bunch. Maybe if I talk to some of them, I could learn what makes us special. Or perhaps even more importantly, what makes our donor-conceived families just like everyone else's. That's why I talked to two solo moms, one from Denmark. My name is Nina Tronshoyensen. And one from Britain. So hi, my name is Holly. I live in Brighton in the UK. I also talked to a German two-mom family. My name is Haley. Hi, and I'm, uh, my name is Katja. And a British mom of twins from another two-mom family. My name is Haley. Um, I'm from the, uh, from the UK. Also, 
I talk to my favorite interviewee, my husband from Denmark. Hi, my name is Christopher, and I am so lucky that meat is my daughter. This group is actually quite representative of who creates donor-conceived families. And the funniest thing about this lot is how different we are, and yet how alike. You are going to meet a lot of different voices on this podcast, and some of them are even named the same. But don't worry, I'll help you know who's talking. I've asked these families a big handful of my million questions and some of their most thought-provoking answers I'll share with you on this podcast. However, talking about this stuff is often considered private. At least my husband seemed to think so. He's often wrinkled his nose when I told people how we needed help from a donor to conceive. Is he okay with me airing our potentially dirty laundry on air? So, you know, I'm doing this podcast on what it means to be donor-conceived and a donor-conceived family all in all. Yep, I've heard about that once or twice. (laughs) How do you feel about that? You doing a podcast? Yeah, on this particular topic, like we're telling the whole world uh, that's not a problem at all. Uh, I must admit, the main thing I was thinking about is that it's really interesting that you will gather a lot of knowledge, a lot of stories that will help us figure out how we're going to do with our daughter. How we're going to tell her, raise her. A lot of men generally opt out of discussions about donor conception. You might notice that the only man we could get to talk to us on this podcast is the one I share a bed with. And I think that's because there's still a bit of shame connected to having no or a low sperm count. Perhaps there's also a bit of fear. If you, the man of the house, cannot provide the sperm needed, are you even a real man? Can you ever be the real dad? Luckily, Christopher is willing to talk about this stuff. But I fully recognize how hard it could be to be in his position. And let's not forget all the mamas on the sides, as one of my friends has stopped her own role in her family. I believe that sharing what is hard is important. And we heard the same from our interviewees again and again. Solo mom Nina thinks it's especially important to share stories when it comes to taking those first steps, choosing whether or not to go the donor way yourself. My first advice would be talk to somebody who's going through it and who would like to share the journey. And the second one would be uh, don't let it be a secret, especially not to the child. It is nothing to be ashamed of. It is uh, an opportunity that uh, has presented itself due to a lot of research and a lot of hard work from scientists. There are all kinds of different reasons that you're not able to find a biological father to your child, and none of them are embarrassing or should be embarrassing. So, hold your head up high and just share your your journey with everybody. And if they're not able to uh, accept this, it's their problem. Hold your head up high and don't be afraid to share your story or ask for others. 
That sounds like good advice for just about anyone. When Nina decided to go for life as a solo mom 18 years ago, it wasn't plan A. Donor conception rarely is. I did have a boyfriend for a very, very long time. And um, when things started to get real, uh, he split and uh, found another woman to get uh, children with, to get a family with. Um, a younger woman, which is pretty hard when you're 27 and be discarded for an even younger woman. But um, but it was always plan A to have a family with a lot of children and to have a husband and a house and a dog. And now I have uh, a daughter and a house and a dog. So well, that's nine out of 10. That counts. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> Letting go of that image of what a family should be took Nina some time. But she had to in order to build a family that could be. Plus, getting 9 out of 10 wishes fulfilled sounds pretty amazing. I was uh, 37 when I started thinking about being a mom on my own, being a solo mom. And I got pregnant when I was 39. So it took a couple of years to uh, get the courage to do it, to sort of uh, reflect on what would the consequences be. And also, I was very clear that I might not have a boyfriend for that entire time. Of course, not all solo moms rule out relationships like Nina did. But for her, that was the right call. At least that's what she says now, in her nice house with her teenage daughter and their cute dog. Talking to Nina, it became more apparent to me that families with donor-conceived children have one thing in common we have had to be quite reflected when it comes to choosing family life and on how to get it. Nina, of course, chose to do it all alone. And as the daughter of a single mom myself, I have the utmost respect for that. Others, like Haley and Katja, knew they, as a same-sex couple, needed help to conceive, even after finding the love of their life. Still, they had to decide on what kind of help they wanted. We was, of course, like brainstorming and running all thoughts through our heads. What's there, like, besides, like, having Ailey wants to have a biological child, like, her child, going through pregnancy, experiencing the whole everything. There was also the aspect of adopting. Yes, maybe. We also then talked about maybe co-parenting, asking someone we know or we don't know, or going through a sperm bank, how do we do it? And in the end, it was quite clear that due to legal side and to make it really um, like official and to be safe and to be, you know, knowing that somebody's not just going to turn up and want to take our child from us, you know, if they want to claim claim, me, right. claim rights. Um, the, the safest thing for us was to go through a sperm bank and then we chose European sperm bank in the end. That's what we did and what gave us the, the, the safest and the best feeling for our journeys through this. For each family, there's their own way, and but this was our way. When you can't just produce offspring in the bedroom on your own, you need to find another way to create a family that feels right to you. Still, for many of us, the need for a donor can seem like a kick to the balls. Pun intended. For me, being bisexual... Well, I thought I'd ended on the easiest path to kiddos, marrying a guy. It just wasn't so. 
The things we had thought would be easy, well, they were hard. And quite unromantic, to be honest. Not just choosing a donor online, like you would shop shoes or leggings, but to go through fertility treatments. In our case, lots and lots of fertility treatments. It seemed anything but easy. At least to us. When we kept trying and trying and trying, it was in the hope that one day we would finally be a real family. What if it didn't feel real? When we decided to use a sperm donor, did you ever worry that you wouldn't feel like her real dad? Yes, it was very much something that was uh, on my mind. Uh, I worried about not being her, in quotation marks, real father uh, a lot. From we started talking about using a donor till we actually went through with the first insemination was six months. And a large proportion of that time I spent getting professional help to make sure I was okay and I didn't have any second thoughts on the subject. So yes, it was very much something I worried about. And I almost felt like I needed a, a, a specific term to describe that person instead of me. And that term, I had a very hard time accepting should be father. For the first long time, I wanted to just refer to the, to the donor as the donor or maybe the donor father or something like that. To make the distinction between me, the father, and the donor as large as possible. What about when she arrived? Did, did you still have this consideration? or? Yes. For the first part of Mita's life, uh, I was keenly aware of trying to distinguish between the father, me, and the donor. And I actually didn't want us to use the term father about the donor. Um, to make that distinction, simply because I was afraid of who's the real father and who's not. <laughs> What about now? Do, do you feel the same? Does it still like pop up in your brain once in a while? No. <laughs> the uh, simply being with her for so long and just seeing her accept me as the dad for so long is completely obliterated that uncertainty and that insecurity. I, for one, I'm a bit afraid that if we call him a father now, she will believe it's another one of you, right? Like when we, the, the dads she meet in her everyday life, those are people taking the kids to the playground and hugs and kisses, uh, gifts at birthdays. And, and a donor is not going to be that, right? No. In our family, in all the families we talk to, This was never an issue once the baby arrived. You feel like a real family because you are a real family. How else would you explain all the love along with the constant Legos on the floor of our homes? That's another thing about us, the parents and donor-conceived families. 
we have happy endings. We wished so hard for a child, and we got one. Or two, like solo mom Holly from Britain, who has always known that she wanted to become a mom. Yeah, I think I did. I mean, I, despite being gay, I, I've always been very traditional in many senses. I, I believe in a lot of conventions and, you know, I just didn't fancy guys in the same way that my friends did. But other than that, I wanted to adhere to most other people's tick boxes. And I think for a lot of people, uh, to become a mum is like the greatest badge of honour in my book. Others, like Haley, mom of twins, wasn't quite that convinced that she was going to be a mom until she met her wife. I've never had that natural um, desire to want to be a mum, like I know a lot of people do. Um, and it was only when I met my now wife, um, and she was very, very keen to have children. And I think it was more, you know, it was then like a mutual decision that we, as our relationship grew, I then actually had a change of heart. What love can do. So, some knew from the very start, others had to be surprised. And as it turns out, two no's can even become a yes. At least, that's what happened to Haley and Katja. Actually, I never wanted children. I know it sounds crazy, but like, I, as a dancer, I always just imagined that I would just be on the stage dancing and I didn't want to, you know, take any time out because this would make my career go, like, to the ground. I didn't want to ruin my body. I never envisioned that for my life um, until I, I met Katya. And I think that feeling's changed when, when you, you know, when you find the right person. So we had the conversation. <laughs> when we... Re- actually met like I didn't plan on anything of what we have right now in life like I didn't plan to marry I didn't was thinking of a family I just wanted to live life and travel and see the world and it just was right in the end right timing you might think that people who had to go that extra mile to conceive never had an inch of doubt but turns out some of us did I for one can really relate to all of these stories If you, or someone you know, begin to wonder whether donor conception is the way to go, just remember this. It's okay to be in doubt, or to want different things through different stages of your life. What's important is that you're sure now. Where you come from, or who you are, doesn't dictate whether or not you can be a good parent. But how you look will make the world react differently to you. Unfortunately. Here is Haley and Katja again, telling how hard it is not to match the stereotypical image of a nuclear family. Also, like in in like the hospital, you know, during labor, the, the midwives asking about the dad or, you know, when you've told them three times there is no dad and they say, oh, yeah, sorry, uh, sperm donor. And it's like, ah, it does get a bit tiring. Because Christopher and I looked the part. No one asked where the real dad was at our midwife appointments. Quite contrary, the staff often forgot that it was not Christopher's DNA helping me grow a tiny human. The way the outside world reacts to us, 
or more precisely, to the way our family looks, might actually mean more than what genes flow around inside of us. That's at least what psychologist Lisa Kramer told me, and she would know. Lisa has her own donor-conceived family and is open enough to share her own thoughts and doubts in her work helping donor-conceived families. My interest for donor children and donor-conceived children is because I have two donor-conceived children myself. My two boys have anonymous donors, both of them, and it's different donors as well. They don't have the same donor. We chose different donors um, mainly because it meant something to my husband and and because we had this idea of what was important was the connection between the boys and him, not as much as biology. And if we chose to have uh, the same donor, we would put the biology in front. So that was the reason. And it's one of the things that I've had second thoughts about since. Uh, And that's because we chose for our children not to be able to know one part of the biology. And my ethical thoughts about it is, was that the right decision to make that decision for them? Were we right to do that? Is it okay to, to choose that when we could have given them the biological connection between them if we had chosen the same donor. I asked Lisa whether donor-conceived children feel different because they are donor-conceived. And as it turns out, that might be the least of their worries. Every human being knows the general human feeling of being different. That becomes with being a human. And that is something that also donor-conceived children can tap into. So in my experience... Being a donor-conceived child and therefore different from others is only the defining narrative if you are met by your surroundings, parents, friends and others as different. Some donor-conceived children feel different from others and sometimes and more often in my experience it's related to the family structure that can be different than, than the exact thing that it's a donor-conceived child. For instance, in gay families, if that's, if the surroundings meets it with prejudice, that is what the child is occupied with. So to your question about do they feel different? Yes, if the surroundings, if the story, if the environment puts it into a box where it is different. But in, in many, many donor families, it's not that that makes them unique or different. It's all other sorts of things. It's not necessarily the donor conception that affects families. It's the way they look. Or, more precisely, what stereotypical expectations the outside world has of them and whether they fit into the standard expectations. Whether others recognize it or not, my kid still got half her DNA from a man I've never met. What does that even mean? Let me give you an example that helped me understand. Let's say my DNA, my recipe, makes me very prone to become dyslexic. In my case, there's no guarantee, but the risk is high. I just happen to grow up in a family, an environment, where everyone loves stories. 
I am read to every day and I come to love books. That means that when I encounter difficulties at school in learning how to read, my love for books makes me fight to get it. I try and I try and I try and all that work changes my brain. My DNA is the same, but my brain changes due to my actions influenced by my environment. I'm not just making this up. Studies of families with adoptive children have shown that their brains, their neurons and synapses look like their adopted parents' brains. That's people they share no more DNA with than they do with you or me. And still, their brains look like their adopted parents. Their bodies adapt. We tend to think of our DNA as something constant. We get what we get. We are what we are. But science shows us that it's not so simple. In my family, I share DNA with my kid. So it might be easy for me to say that I feel Christopher is as much a real parent as I am. I asked Katja, who doesn't share DNA with her child, whether she or others have ever doubted that she was a real parent. No one never ever walked up to me and said like, well, no, what you do, you're just the plus one. The questions about the baby's real parents, on one hand, seem so omnipresent, and on the other, completely ridiculous. Families like ours feel the real in each living moment. Holly, solo mom of two, has an inspiring perspective on this. Maybe there are people that judge my setup, but to be honest, I, I'm too busy parenting and loving and I don't have the mental time to invest or listen to any people's opinions about it. And, um, you know, I feel like we're in 2022 now and surely we've come far along enough that road whereby we shouldn't even need to question or give a monkeys about what other people think because, you know, to be a parent takes, you know, a lot. And, yeah, all of all of that energy needs to be going into ploughing in, you know, the life teachings and love and <laughs> feeding and everything else that goes with With, with being a mum, basically. Exactly. We do what works for our families, for our children. Wait a minute. I suddenly feel like I've forgotten something. I talked to so many parents like myself. But what about the kids? You know, the people who never get to decide whether they would like to be a part of a donor-conceived family or not. They just are. We really need their perspective on this, as Katja reminded me. The most important is maybe to get the perspective of a, a yeah, someone who grew up as a sperm donor child. But it's like when you're going through the process and you're choosing a sperm donor to found your own family, you kind of know already what you what you're going to. Like you have to prepare your body if you are the caring mom, or you have to deal with the fact that there's no genetics uh, in your child we could only recommend like really to get the sight of how it is to grow up as a sperm donor child that 
is why our next episode is entirely dedicated to them, the people we create with the help of sperm donors. We will talk to three different donor-conceived adults who've come to know about their heritage in quite different ways. I, for one, can't wait to get their perspective. When I found out I was donor-conceived, weirdly, there was a lot of similarities between being a gay woman when I was young coming out and trying to hide that element of me than when I found out I was donor-conceived because the themes of shame, hiding those things, secrets, leading a double life, all of those things were very, very similar. Your child doesn't only think about this when they are a child, they grow up to be an adult. And so be open-minded throughout the life of your child. And maybe also uh, highlight the fact that uh, me and dad or mom or whoever uh, took the decision to, to have you out of love and that's what makes a parent. You have listened to the podcast Being Donor Conceived Stories from Children and Parents. I'm your host, Sabrina Witting Seerup, and my producer is Annette Hellström. We want to thank our sponsor, European Sperm Bank. And if you want to know more about being a donor conceived family, I highly recommend going to European Sperm Bank's blog. They have tons of interviews and other resources to check out. I want to end by sending a big thanks to all the lovely people sharing their stories and knowledge with us in these episodes. This podcast would have never existed without them. Or you, our listeners. <laughs>